This podcast is recorded in Australia, on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I wish to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and give thanks to the knowledge they have shared. Welcome to Moments of Change. My name is Melanie Raymond and I'm a social designer based in Sydney, Australia and currently a director at the Australian Centre for Social Innovation. Moments of Change is a podcast dedicated to exploring the moments that we learn from as we seek to design and cultivate positive social change. In this episode, I speak with Kellyanne McKercher. Kellyanne is a designer, artist and author of Beyond Sticky Notes, doing co-design for real. They lead design in Australia's largest public pathology and forensic service, whilst also teaching social design and supporting individuals and organisations to develop ethical and inclusive design practice. Kellyanne has worked for a number of leading design agencies across Australia and New Zealand, including the Australian Centre for Social Innovation, Optimal Experience and the Innovation Unit, and has a background in design, social innovation and social anthropology. Kellyanne is a truly mindful practitioner and we explore their views on what authentic co-design looks like by diving straight into the contents of their new book, unpacking the nuanced understanding of what inclusion looks like, the power of trusting relationships and the mindsets and behaviours needed to do true social design. I hope you enjoy this episode of Moments of Change. Kellyanne, welcome to Moments of Change. Thanks Mel, it's lovely to be with you. Thank you. Let's kick off. How do you describe your current role and and how do you think your view of your purpose has evolved over your career? I guess my current role is a little bit of a, a mixture of things. It's primarily about increasing, I guess, the literacy or the fluency of organizations and their practice of design, be that the kind of design that's about designing for people, designing with people, or even better being able to be led entirely by people and sort of standing back and letting people to, I guess, take the reins, but also determine their own agenda rather than having an agenda determined for them. Beautiful. So that looks like a little bit of work currently in public health. It looks like a little bit of work, I guess, coaching individuals who want to build their own design practice. Maybe they've already got one. Maybe they've moved across from a different flavor of design, be that industrial design or product design or tech. And then it looks a little bit like working with executives or kind of senior bureaucrats who really want to be able to commission design, but are a bit bamboozled. I guess the wild west of design methods that are sort of out there and not really knowing where to start (laughs) to, to achieve their goals. I guess in terms of how my purpose has changed over time, I don't know if that's been an intentional thing, but rather probably a series of experiences and particular Mm. projects where I've been maybe disturbed a little bit out of my kind of privilege and security and sense of what sort of my role is inside the system and my role as a designer. And that's probably led me to thinking much more about where is my place to stand and what are the types of projects and initiatives that I should be involved in and which are the ones that I should be standing back getting out of the way or I guess supporting from the wings. Yeah I love that idea of being value-led in terms of what are the projects that I shouldn't be involved in. I think that's 
a continuing tension for a lot of designers, particularly in a mm. in a, an environment where you know you still have to put food on the table. So it's so interesting to sort of hear that up front and centre with yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So congratulations on your new book, Beyond Sticky Notes, Doing Co-Design for Real. That's very exciting. I'm, I'm having a lot of FOMO uh, because my Twitter feed is lighting up with everyone holding it in their hands. <laughs> Thank you. Well done. Yeah, I've enjoyed watching the little snippets come through as you've created that and it's really exciting. Tell me, what does co-design mean to you in this instance and how does the book sort of unpack some Mm. of the nuances that perhaps people often miss Mm. to sort of go beyond that word to a really truly transformative approach for creating positive change in people's lives? Yeah, it's a, a good question and thank you for your congratulations. (laughs) So, look, I guess the book is three parts. The first part of the book deals with the social movement part of co-design and a recognition that I guess many people don't get the opportunity to participate in the decisions that shape their lives, their bodies, their livelihoods. Mm. And as a result of that, we see these enormous policy gaps between what decision makers think people want to need and what people and families themselves would define as their aspirations, their goals and their hopes for the types of services, policy, whatever that they receive, not that anyone particularly dreams of services or or having more (laughs) services. So the first part of the book, no, is really dealing with the social movement of, I guess, transforming inequitable power structures, Mm. changing our mindset around who are the right people to be making decisions it sort of poses, I guess, a bit of a framework for a set of social movements for us to be sort of adopting if we're going to work in more participatory and more power-sharing ways, which I guess is about doing, of course, with people, not for them. Mm. It's about shifting out of a very colonising, ableist, heteronormative sort of perspective into one that recognises and responds to dimensions of difference. It sort of goes into, I guess, a bit of unpacking of power and privilege and how we sort of need to be quite sensitive of who we are in relationship to the people that we're trying to work with, if we should be working with those people in the first place. And I guess poses an idea to designers that we might exercise power and partnership and that we sort of might move into a more of a coaching and supporting role as opposed to kind of asserting that, you know, like kind of design hero or design dominance where we assume we know what people want to need. And and when we do that, I guess it removes the need for their input entirely sometimes it's so embedded in design education though is that sort of design as a hero and 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 I hope that design education is slowly unraveling that but what I hear in what you're saying there Kellyanne is that how do you sort of go beyond that typical trope of design with which is held up often as the sort of hero to co-design to actually like getting underneath the skin of these issues or these conditions that are holding things in place like structural racism or unravelling sort of decolonisation of design and moving to more holding a space that's not heteronormative. Like how do you sort of move into the depth of that through co-design to really Mm. look at sort of mutual learning and and the power of relationships? Look, I think... We sort of need to act at multiple levels. I think the first level to act on is one that's about small circles Mm -hmm. and that's really about how we convene 
people with lived experience, professionals, people inside of organisations making a decision, making decisions and sort of convene them around something that they all care about. And in that sort of process of designing, build what I think are sort of the necessary mindsets for these types of ways of being and doing, which are things like curiosity, hospitality, learning by doing, elevating lived experience, valuing many perspectives. Because I almost think like before you doing co-design, you almost have to be being co-design and having those sort of supportive, I guess, mindsets and attitudes that aren't just about designing with people, but also seeing relationships as being able to be more dignified and seeing people being able to speak about their own experiences but not have to talk on behalf of of anyone else. Mm. And I think that when we convene really small circles and build capability and mindsets, those are things that create much bigger circles and sort of ripples out into systems. And I think particularly Mm. if we engage, you know, decision makers or influencers who are already part of the dominant power structure and we're able to shift their mindset and attitude in some way that often I think opens up the opportunity for those types of ways of being and doing to be applied across other settings and in other spaces where we've possibly had quite a paternalistic way of seeing people as sort of passive recipients as opposed to co-producers. But I guess it's not enough to just work at that small circle and, and we can do so much incredible design work in, in small rooms and in small conversations, but that doesn't necessarily shift systems. Mm. So I think we also sort of have to be looking up and out and around and intervening in the structures of institutions themselves, which might be about how is a project set up and who's in a room in the first place to talk about its scope? What kinds of governance models are we using and and who's ultimately making decisions? What kinds of incentives do we have for sort of more participatory and and more uh, power sharing ways of being and doing or kind of disincentives (laughs) do we have? How do we sort of evaluate and learn at scale? I think it's almost like an onion. (laughs) There's sort of a number of different layers to peel off and conditions to build, which I often think is sometimes about very ordinary things like, do you have money to pay people with lived experience or do you have the right kinds of skilled people to convene this work and are you paying and supporting them or are you expecting them to do it on top of their existing already busy day job? It's good to hear you sort of speak about what those small circles might mean at scale and how you would sort of enable voice uh, across those sort of layers of the system. Mm. Um, Because I think there is a misconception in some of the work that I've been involved in across the years that this sort of co-design thing is, oh, it's over there, it's over where the people are. Mm. And then in in the institution, it's almost like they're just seeking the answers to be fed back. And so actually what you really need them to do is create that connection and embed themselves in the in the the being of co-design as well because Mm. that's where that really great value comes to be able to shift power structures or shift organisational sort of framing of particular issues. Absolutely. So tell us about what's the moment of change that you've brought today to share with us? Yeah, so look, when I was thinking about co-design and thinking about some of the moments where perhaps I realized a little bit about myself and my practice and what was effective and what wasn't was um, working on a particular project a couple of years ago where we were trying to 
co-design better mental health, drug and alcohol and suicide prevention services and supports. And really a very refreshing project where we walked in and found an executive who already had this desire to change their business structures to support a different way of designing, not just to have a series of workshops and then go back into their room and decide what they would and would not listen to. And I suppose the other thing that shouldn't be courageous but was courageous was also naming a number of different groups of people for whom we know have disproportionately poor mental health outcomes and who are not well served by our sort of mainstream or or universal systems and supports and to call those folks out very explicitly and say that we want to have a a co-design process that I guess responds to those dimensions of difference as I mentioned earlier but also builds different kinds of relationships between clinicians and between people with lived experience. So how did that sort of process unfold for you across your journey, I guess, with the, with the, the people with lived experience in that space, but also, interestingly, with, with the sort of commissioning organisation as well? Yeah, so look, I guess the first thing, which is often a real standout, is what is the current level of sort of literacy that the organisation has about designing with or even going a step further to be led by. And that often involves lots of conversations, of course, with with executives, but also with our, you know, like very traditional community advisory groups or clinical advisory groups to get a sense for, I guess, what are they thinking and hoping? How has their participation been a part of projects in the past? And where has that fallen a little bit short? Mm. So I guess everything starts with immersing and aligning, of course, of getting a sense of, you know, what has been done? Where has that already been strong? Where are there relationships? Where is there a lack of relationships? And where are the, I guess, already people in community who are knitting together services and supports for each other? because services themselves have failed or not being able to quite reach them, which I think is a a different frame to the one we usually use in design where we expect going in to find something new or to find that something isn't working or hasn't worked um, and not necessarily expecting to find kind of a web of resource that perhaps we could be better seeing and supporting that kind of already exists at that community level. Mm. I guess the other part was also I had this idea of having like a co-design ombuds person because I knew that (laughs) as a convener of co-design that I wanted to be really accountable and make sure that I was the right person for this process and that the different groups that we were bringing together felt dignified I guess in that process. So I I had a a member of the client organisation become the ombuds person and they became the one who did all of the kind of pre-relationship work with every single co-designer so that by the time we brought them together for the first gathering, there was already a sense of relationship there and already a sense of some of the kind of curation aspects that we might want to bring into the room in terms of who might we sit together, what type of triggering language might we need to avoid for particular people in recovery, you know, which types of clinicians were going to be a really slow burn and who possibly had some mindsets and attitudes that we might have needed to work on a little bit before exposing them to, you know, for example, people with really diverse gender identities. So I think we underestimate all the work that we have to do before we get in the room together and sort of assume that everyone will feel safe and comfortable and included and welcome. And I guess even after doing a bunch of that work to 
build relationships prior to getting in the room, to start to understand something about people's aspirations, their hopes, their previous experiences. You know, there were still a few people that never made it into the room. And I guess that always bothers me. And, you know, probably part of the reason of writing the book was trying to unpack for myself, how do we really think about, I guess, safety and welcome ahead of design activities, be they a workshop or an interview or whatever type of session, so that we we aren't losing so many people before their contributions are even able to be heard. Yeah, that rings true for me in previous experience, you know, in the UK is Actually, some people are not ready to share their voice in in those types of sort of service organisations where people sort of hold up this, hold up the value of the voice of lived experience, the voice of young people. Mm. But actually, some people aren't aren't there yet, and that's okay. Mm. And so, you know, what responsibility do we have in certain situations where it might be a particular institution that is is holding some of that role in, in advocating for those people? Is what role do they play in actually sort of paving the way for people to just feel ready to share their voice if mm. that's what they would like to do in the future uh, and it might not be actually now. And so, you know, moving behind, beyond this or, or prior to this idea of the, the workshop is actually there's just a lot of relational work to go on behind the scenes to, to make people feel comfortable. Yeah, there is. And I suppose the other aspect is that, you know, I've been, really curious over the last couple of years of working a lot in sort of mental health and drug and alcohol and having a lot of those things intersect with my own lived experience of what role design relationship really good relational design can have in being part of recovery itself and we know that sort of in recovery community the support of peers you know someone saying me too are all really important aspects, as is having choices. And I think sometimes we have this temptation because we want to look after people and we're worried about risk and we, you know, think about things like vulnerability, that we think so much about that that we just automatically exclude their participation and make decisions on behalf of them. And I've seen some some really good tools lately that a few organisations have put together that, you know, are really a self-assessment for a person to be able to sit down and think, through some different ways of, you know, am I ready to be involved in in suicide prevention activity? Am I ready to be involved in recovery mm. activity? And and if I'm ready, what might be the different ways that I might be involved? I think that really a great many people do want to share their voices, but the forums that we make available to them are just not that meaningful. <laughs> um, and what they they're met with is you know a crappy workshop where people sit around a boardroom table and and ask often quite invasive and and quite you know neglecting of strength and then we're sort of surprised when they say I'm not coming back for the next session so I, I think we're so rushed like quick to rush to the work and not sort of able to spend enough time and this is a little bit different in Australia than it is in New Zealand to say maybe building relationships both with co-designers but also between co-designers and have the kind of fabric of social connection all the way through the design process, like maybe that's really the thing we should be investing as much as possible, not sort of just getting straight into the design activities. You know, I was thinking, I was uh, coming into this interview today, I was I was thinking about sort of getting into the depths of, of authentic co-design and what good looks like and uh, I was explaining it to a colleague and I said you know I remember this situation in the UK where myself and a a particular 
colleague on a program, we were talking about in, including, you know, young people participation in, in a workshop. And we're both nodding around the table as, as we seemingly are in agreement about, you know, this is an important thing for a young person to be involved in and, 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 and ideally, you know, they are expressing what would good look like in, in terms of support for them and, and of course, indeed, not, not taking the tact of tell us all the bad stuff that's happened and, you know, how we'd fix it, but actually sort of putting them in a, in a position that they are the expert. But I was just thinking about actually when I saw that in action, that person, in my opinion, had put a young person in a, in a situation that I think was not the best situation for them. But mm. really all these notions of what good co-design looked like and the power of lived experience and designing with suddenly just fell beneath my feet as I realised the nuance of intent and behaviours and understanding behind that was not aligned. You know, how do you how do you sort of bridge that gap with people in terms of the really sort of considered approaches? Look, I think there's kind of a couple of things, one being a show don't tell. I think it's almost impossible to explain to someone that's never seen a really relational and careful and generous design process in action how that might be different. And I've often noticed that when I've involved people in that process, it's only after, you know, a meaningful session, series of sessions, a, a win of some kind that we've then be able to, I guess, sit down together and for them to kind of be uh, coached through their own realizations about how that is different and how that feels different and how that was convened different. And I guess there's an accountability to how professionals behave too that I think we we don't always hold each other to account on and sort of mm. some of the things that professionals say and do in relationship with people with lived experience is so demeaning and sort of can just undermine any sort of session. And I almost think that we're too quick, as I mentioned, to rush into the room, that we don't necessarily say ahead of that time hey, we're going to do a little bit of work together to prepare you for your participation. I think what we focus on is that there's all these people with lived experience and they're the ones that need to change. I actually think it's the opposite thing, that it's, you know, the system needs to be much better at listening and professionals need to be much more generous and self-aware. And there's some professions that haven't had a lot of that asked of them. So it, it can be a bit affronting, you know, to sit someone down before a session and say like these are some behaviors that are not okay and these are some ways that we will all be to create a mutual environment of safety and I think you know sometimes also we bring professionals into environments that don't themselves have enough connection with the what we're exploring so I guess one of the things that that I always try to do is make sure that at least some of the professionals in in co-design share an identity in some way with people with lived experience so that it's not performative because I think in so many places as you say we get caught up in the performance of caring about lived experience but have not carved out the necessary structures or even just basic stuff like body language of you know when someone shares an experience and being stuck in fact-checking and continuously saying, that didn't happen. That's not how it should have happened. And I can remember in this project that we're speaking about, the moment that sticks most powerfully in my head was turning around and seeing a, oh, he would have been like probably 65-year-old clinician, very conservative man, speaking to a young gender-diverse person with lived experience. 
and they were having this really like in-depth conversation about each other. And that was sort of the moment that I sort of realized like this process of relationship first and kind of curiosity and slowly and gently working together over, I think it was probably about eight or nine sessions. Like this relationship is the result of that investment. Mm -hmm. And without that sort of investment in kind of bringing this group together, that particular conversation probably never would have happened. And that Mm -hmm. clinician never would have taken then that shift in his practice back into his day-to-day working environment where, you know, it's possible that now he's able to have different kinds of conversations and create a sense of welcome for people that not because he was poorly intentioned, but because he didn't know how to have conversations across difference. I'm thinking as you say this, you know, the the, the I'm sure there are people listening going, but how do you measure that? You know, what's the what's the yardstick stick of success that you go to the, the lead client and say this was successful you know how do you how do you uh, approach uh, I guess I'm doing air quotes you can't see me but air quotes around sort of measurement in this space where actually we're really holding the intent of of authentic relationships at the heart of of, of how we're going about practice yeah look I think there's two there's a couple of things there there's how we monitor and evaluate the process itself of of co-design or co-production. And then there's how we monitor and evaluate the benefit of having worked in that way to create a new Mm -hmm. thing, whether that thing be policy or service or whatever. I think when it comes to the process side of things, I mean, some of the questions that I often ask co-designers is how do we feel about each other and do we feel like we're investing in something hopeful together? I'm sure that our monitoring and evaluation friends would be like, that's not a monitoring and evaluation <laughs> question. But to me, those to me are kind of two of the two of the questions that that I'm kind of wanting to know as a convener. When it comes to the the actual what we're making together though, the part that I care most about monitoring, evaluating and learning about is the shift in underpinning mindsets and attitudes. So I think a lot of our services, our programs, you know, we get very caught up in how we're going to do them. Like, you know, what are the channels? What's the brochure like? What's the website? God forbid, what's the app? Mm -hmm. And in that, we kind of lose the fact that in some of these systems like mental health, for example, what we need is a shift from big psychiatry to kind of big community as the Aotearoa Wellbeing Manifesto describes, which, you know, some of those underpinning values and attitudes that people are practicing from or working from, I think often they're the most interesting things to try to get a a baseline of and then to keep a track of over time. Because Mm. I would sort of argue that those underlying mindsets and attitudes are what really shifts our practice, particularly as professionals. And that if we can sort of understand what matters most and how people want to be treated and then notice the gaps in that, I think we haven't quite caught up with the citizen accountability part two. So we're often doing these kind of processes where we hear what people want and need, but then we don't build indicators in that they've defined for themselves we're still using the same kind of indicators and outcome measures that the system wants. Like, for example, did people leave hospital before they got their treatment, which is not necessarily an outcome that a, a patient would define for themselves. So I think there's lots of work to do in that space and, and monitoring evaluation certainly not my background, but I have seen sort of some really interesting 
measurements when we focus particularly on the mindsets and attitudes and when we understand really 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 deeply which are the ones that people with lived experience want need and expect and how do we know if that's not happening inside of a system i've got a curly question for you the the term lived experience how, how does that sit with you in referring to people that have experience with a particular issue I heard someone the other day say there's no such thing as a lived experience there's living experience Mm. which I was kind of thinking about the past tense part of that that you know in some ways lived experience suggests that something's over but I think when it comes to a lot of recovery from trauma addiction violence whatever it is it's probably living experience more so than lived experience but I don't think that has the Mm. same ring to it when it comes to that term I have heard some people be very critical because they feel like it's a term that's owned by mental health specifically right. and has sort of been birthed by or born by that particular social movement around increasing the dignity of people in mental health who, for example, might have been involuntary, hospitalised or, or restrained. I think for, if I take that from like a personal level, I found it very kind of liberating to be able to connect my own lived experience up to the types of issues, challenges, opportunities that I work on. Mm -hmm. And I have always found that to be a beneficial thing when I'm able to work with a group of people where we share some kind of experience and we know a little bit about how it, it feels to have had an experience and to be living the effects of an experience. Mm-hmm. I think that unfortunately lived experience can be a bit misappropriated into people can then become proxies or sort of representatives and lived experience workers then kind of sometimes end up as the system thinks that they're done and because they've got a lived experience worker they never have to talk to anyone with lived experience Mm -hmm. ever again and I think the other place where we conflate this is in carers and families and you know carers and families have their own series of experiences that you know can also be really traumatic and hard but they don't get to speak on behalf of the people that they're caring for. So I think the the lived experience space, the lived experience leadership space, I think there's some teething issues with that, particularly here in Australia as we see like a really big increase of the language of lived experience, lived experience roles, but we don't necessarily see a match increase in the capacity of systems to know how to listen, how to support someone in a lived experience role, but to also sort of call out where people might use their lived experience to, I guess, demean or silence others. I'd love to see it move beyond its use in terms of othering people to really centering around at like an asset that they that that person brings to potentially that role and I think there is those I'm sort of seeing in Australia those opportunities where people can are held up with those assets into particular roles and that's and that's their pathway into those new jobs new roles in particularly I guess government and and sort of third sector organizations in Australia. Yeah I think I agree with that in terms of seeing the the resilience and strength of it, not just the the disadvantage or the hardship of it. I think the thing, however, that we miss sometimes, though, is that everyone in co-design has something to teach and something to learn. And I think sometimes when we become stuck in this advocacy kind of role, what happens is we, we're talking at each other. And I understand why some advocates have 
have fallen into that because it's the system is hard and gnarly and aggressive and they're matching that with that. But I wonder sometimes where lived experience doesn't have the resonance or impact we hope for because it's not malleable enough and it's not soft enough at the edges <laughs> to be able to sort of let let other people in to be collaborators and co-creators because I think often professionals come to co-design and they sort of say things like, oh, I just won't talk. I'll just let the people with lived experience talk because I don't, you know, I don't want to freak them out. Mm-hmm. And of course that's that's not co-design because that's not mutual learning. Mm-hmm. It sort of has to go all kinds of different ways, the learning. So I think some of those traditional advocacy models, I wouldn't necessarily call them co-design, but I think they can find a home in co-design if people are able to sort of soften their armour. And I know that sort of particularly survivors and people who have experienced a lot of trauma that could be a really hard thing to do and hence the need to really delicately build relationship and build conditions for participation. Kellyanne I think I could talk to you all afternoon and thankfully we live in the same city now so uh, it's possible to keep doing that but we're actually coming to the end of moments of change and I, I wanted to ask you before we leave you know what's that big wildly important goal that you're thinking across the next year in terms of your practice that you might share with others? Look I sort of holding on to a a really difficult and sad experience of having been a foster parent recently and there's been a lot of things in that experience that I've noticed about participation, about the system, about lived experience, about power and I need to for myself direct those somewhere so I'm hoping that in the next kind of six to 12 months I can find a place where you know having written this book coaching in this practice that I sort of find a way to match up the things that I I guess write about and and teach with some of the reform and the change that I would like to be a part of setting in motion in some of the systems that we feel reasonably harmed by ourselves. Thanks for sharing that, Kellyanne. Thank you so much for coming on Moments of Change. Tell me, how can people get a hold of your shiny new book? (laughs) Yes. So if you'd like to read the Kindle version, it's on Amazon. You can just search Beyond Sticky Notes. If you'd like to buy a paperback, you can go to my website, which is www.beyondstickynotes.com, and you can order that from just about anywhere in the world. But if I don't have your place, then just reach out to me. You can find me on Twitter at Co-Design Club, and happy to try to work something out if you are in some place that mail is hard to get to. Thank you so much for having me today, Mel. Thanks, Kellyanne. That's all for this episode of Moments of Change. If you liked this episode, feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes relating to service design, product management, design research and much, much more. You can join the This Is HCD newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network or join the Slack community on thisishcd.com. I look forward to sharing more stories with you. Until next time.